We were gathering, started in October last year in a park just like this. We got into Tula Community Center, and then, uh, you know, you know, 2020 happened. UFOs and presidential cycles and, and everything that's happening. And uh, they shut us down, and so we weren't able to meet for six months, and now we're back in a park, and we're starting over from ground zero. And so this is a brand-new church plant. It's a ton of fun. I really do pray if you're visiting here this morning that you really pray like, whoa, Maybe this is an opportunity for me to jump into a new community, get settled, and be in for the long run here in San Diego, which is such a transient city. Awesome. We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning. We're making our journey through the gospel of John here at Neighbors Church, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, just chewing on every little morsel that John lays out for us. And I want to remind you guys, when we come to the sermon, we come to interact with God. This isn't you just getting some information. This is a conversation as the Spirit indwells you. And so to set up this conversation, I want to invite you to do something before we pray. If you can, if you're able, uh, and you don't have to watch like a little short human go running off, I'd invite you to close your eyes and just take a big deep breath down into your belly. Become aware of your body, where you are in time and space. Just noticing all the noises around us. We got the 15, just life flying past us at 85 miles an hour. The birds, the the, the climate, the feel of the grass on our feet, all of these gifts to us. And now if you would, another deep breath, I would invite you to just explore why you follow Jesus. As I ask you that question right now, become aware the reasons the motivations, the desires that led you to decide, I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to follow him. Maybe some of the initial reasons that you chose to follow Jesus have changed over the years. Maybe right now, if you're really honest, you're in a season of deep deconstruction and you're like, I don't even know if I want to follow Jesus anymore. I'm not even sure Jesus is there. And you're really wrestling with, why you follow. Just just let those images, those thoughts, those memories, those desires, those motivations percolate in your mind and in your soul and in your body as we enter into this conversation with our Father through this sermon as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. If you would, just as an offer of stillness to God, another deep breath down into your body letting the fact that our souls are enmeshed in this flesh be offered to God now. We give you everything, Jesus. Speak to us. Shape us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. John is an extremely sophisticated author. We often think of the authors of antiquity as prudish and not as wise as we moderns, but John is an extremely sophisticated piece of literature. What John does is he uses these very detailed and nuanced character arcs throughout his whole gospel, and they reveal different motivations and desires and various reasons that people had for following Jesus. And as you track along with the various opponents and the crowds and the disciples, these patterns emerge through the gospel of John. Some initially decide to follow Jesus, but eventually they fall away, while others moment by moment through their whole life, 
they always end up turning back to Jesus and they end up completely transformed, heart, mind, body, and soul. Christianity is a lifelong series of decisions about Jesus. That's what this whole thing is. Now, in modern Western Christianity, we have tended to emphasize a person's initial decision. You know, we pray the sinner's prayer after raising our hands, none of which is in the Bible, by the way. But in so doing, we have, as Western modern Christians, underemphasized the crucial decisions we make through the rest of our lives following Jesus that lead to greater health. And this neglect has resulted in an entrenched immaturity in the overall body of Christ throughout the West. So we decided to follow Jesus 20 years ago, but 20 years later, our lives still look tragically similar to everyone else around us. We're still just as anxious. We're still just as frenetic in our pacing. We're still just as exhausted as our neighbor, friend, family member, and foe. Where our tradition has tended to emphasize outward, charismatic, charismatic meaning like spirit-empowered activity, like intercessory prayer and evangelism and Bible teaching, all of which are very important and good things, other traditions through the history of Christian tributaries have emphasized the exploration of the interior world, of our desires and our motivations, and the hidden narratives that actually shape and influence our outward behavior. So the contemplatives and the mystics, the desert fathers, they developed these practices that centered on being still, learning to listen to God in the silence, reflecting deeply apart from any distraction. They developed spiritual and meditative ways of reading the scriptures that went beyond just taking in information, things like Lectio Divina, Ignatian imaginative readings of scripture that moved God's word from merely our brains deep into these embodied souls, heart, mind, body, soul, and strength, as Jesus would say. We need both charismatic, that is spirit-empowered outward activity, and contemplative interior receptivity to fully mature in Jesus. We need head knowledge and an experiential knowledge of God. And I would propose that a revitalization of the mystery of God, it is key to us continuing to decide to follow God through our whole life because I guarantee you, God is very confusing the longer and further you go with him. (laughs) Neighbors is a community of contemplative charismatics. This is the spin that we want in our heads. We are a community of contemplative charismatics. And all that applies to John chapter 6, which carries us through the character arcs where people decide, I like Jesus, but later I don't like Jesus. And some leave and some stay all the way to the end. So from our text this morning, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, the most famous miracle of Jesus, it's the only one that's written about in all four gospels, the multiplying of the fish and loaves. We want to Learn why we follow Jesus. Let's explore that interior piece a little bit. Then we're going to talk about what the miracle means. And then we'll talk about how we are transformed concretely. Why we follow Jesus, what the miracle means, how we are transformed. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. If you have your Bibles or your phones with you, 
You can read along. We use the NIV as a translation for preaching from here at Neighbors. Verse 1, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's talk about why we follow Jesus. When we first decide to follow the Lord, it is because we have a want or a need. We want something from him or we need something from him. And that is not a bad thing. That is a good and perfectly normal motivation to begin to follow Jesus. We find ourselves hurting somewhere in our life, so we start to follow him in hopes of what he will give to us or do for us. So from our story, there were those that began to follow Jesus because they'd seen his signs and they wanted him to give them something, namely the multiplication of bread. They needed their bellies filled. Verse 15, the last passage that we read, tells us that there were some who initially decided to follow Jesus because they saw him as a military political leader. They needed a political ruler on their behalf. They wanted him to do something for them. But in both of those cases, Jesus challenged their initial motivations to actually help them. For example, for those who were following him, motivated merely by a need to get material things from him, he will say to them later in chapter 6, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And for those who were following him because they merely wanted a political leader to deliver them from under the Roman, uh, the Roman oppression under which they lived, Jesus doesn't even, like, give a nod of appreciation to their desire. He literally just withdraws. They try to make him king by force, and he just leaves. In each case, Jesus always seeks to correct and mature 
our initial motivations for following him. So we have to ask why. Why does he do that? If you're taking notes, please write this down. If we make the initial reasons we start following Jesus, our only and main reasons for following Jesus, it is very likely we will stop following Jesus. We won't last. I'll just say that again. Complicated sentence, but very important. If we make the initial reasons that we started following Jesus, if those become our only and main reasons for following Jesus, it is very, very likely we will stop following Jesus. It won't last. And this is why. This is a very nuanced point. Please track with this. This is why. Our initial motivations keep us in the driver's seat in our relationship with God. We come to God and we tell him what we need, and then we assume he's going to do it. We come to God and we tell him what we want him to do, and then we assume that he's going to do it. But that is not the way that being truly human works. That's humans trying to be God. This is what we did in the garden. This is why everything is so messed up right now, because we want to be in the driver's seat. Does everybody recognize that? The whole mess, every bit of it, is because our initial motivations in our relationship with God are to keep ourselves in the position of God, which is less than being fully human. Contemplative psychologist Gerald May, he writes about two diametrically opposed extremes within Christian spirituality. The first is an immature attempt to control God with the right kind of prayers and the religious rites, all through self-will. The second, in contrast to that, is this mature recognition that Jesus is the ultimate spiritual power in the universe. And that individual now seeks ever deeper union with him through self-surrender. The first is self-willed, the second is self-surrendered. The first tries to master God. The second is mastered by God, saying just exactly as Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And this is a crucial point for us at this moment in the history of the church. Today we have entire theological systems that are built upon the teaching that Jesus will give us whatever we want. Health, wealth, warm, fuzzy feelings, a certain political leader. If we have enough faith, if we pray the right prayers, if we do the things. And then when our dreams aren't fulfilled and we don't get what we want and Jesus doesn't bless our political strategy, we become cynical and angry and eventually some walk away from the whole thing completely, altogether. There's actually something really profound, though, in this walking away if we will slow down and be still and explore the inner narrative that's causing us such cynicism and anger and departing, what we discover is that we're not actually leaving Jesus of Nazareth. We're leaving a facsimile or a misrepresentation of Jesus construed to serve our own interests. So much of the deconstruction we see happening in Christian culture today is people deconstructing religious systems that taught them Jesus gives you everything you want, and then Jesus doesn't give them everything they want, and so they leave that system thinking they're leaving Jesus. 
Many people are leaving religious systems that taught there are always easy, always clear, always black and white answers to all of life's issues. The Bible says it, therefore it is, you just need to believe it type systems. When we know that's not the case, and they're frustrated with that teaching that does not acknowledge the complexities and the nuances of all of human life, and they're not in that moment deconstructing Jesus, Jesus' teachings were terribly nuanced, and his answers were complex and oftentimes so confusing. So many. This is crucial. I am heartbroken over some of the conversations I'm having with Christians. In this polarized political moment, many are deconstructing terribly broken political systems that just have Jesus' name stamped onto them. They are not deconstructing the King of Kings. The King of Kings cannot be deconstructed. Do you see? You must see. Jesus challenges and matures our motivations for following him, for following him beyond what he gives to us and what he does for us so that we will stop trying to master God and be mastered by God in union with him. Hi, Gid. How you doing, buddy? God can actually use this deconstruction process as part of what transforms us because deconstruction done well in the spirit actually leads to the real Jesus, frees us from the facsimiles and the misrepresentations of Jesus. And so recognizing what is actually slowing down and recognizing what am I deconstructing is powerful because at the bottom of the pile of rubble is the living, breathing, king of kings, creator of all things, waiting to reconstruct our souls in his truth and in his love. And of course, he's still Jesus. The crux of the issue is once all the false teachings and misrepresentations and facsimiles of Jesus, once those have all been deconstructed down into this pile of rubble, we still have to face Jesus and decide, will I follow him and receive him moment by moment through my entire life? Or will I walk away? Because Jesus will be no less than master of everything in our life. Master of everything in our life. He will not be mastered. So let's talk now about what this miracle actually teaches us. What does this miracle mean, this most famous of all of Jesus' miracles next to the resurrection? First, the miracle teaches us that Jesus cares for all people regardless of the reasons that we're coming to him to seek him. Regardless of our motivations, the miracle teaches us that he cares for all of us. He could have stood up, and there's 5,000 of them, and most of them only want material things from him. And he could have said, you know what? This life is not about this world. I'm out. And he didn't. He didn't rebuke the crowds. He didn't stand up and say, all you guys want is a magic show for this world. Instead, he provided for them. He was compassionate and merciful. The people who were trying to force him into their political system, he didn't rebuke them. He fed them, regardless of where they stood. Jesus did not condemn. He gave to all out of compassion. I'm telling you, I find great hope in this because the nasty cocktail that is Dan's desires, motivations, and broken, disordered issues, I'm so glad that the minute I turn to Jesus for whatever reason, he's there saying, can't wait to provide for you, kiddo. I am there for you regardless of the reason you're coming for me. I'm going to shape them and mature them, 
but I'm so glad you're here. I'm, I'm not going to depart from you. Jesus always knows in our lives as individuals, as a church, as a society, he knows exactly what to give or not to give. He knows exactly what to do or not to do to draw our souls into himself. Now, second, the miracle teaches that Jesus wants to partner with us. God wants union with his disciples in partnership. Jesus did not do this miracle by himself. Did everybody notice that? He actually brought in his disciple, and he uses the plural pronoun we. Hey, Philip, how are we going to buy bread for all these people, to which Philip kind of freaks out. And that we, that plural moment with Jesus and Philip, that is the secret sauce for our souls. That is literally the key for us going the long haul all the way to heaven with the Lord. Obedient partnership with the Father and the Holy Spirit in Jesus. That in Jesus terminology is deep theology developed over millennia now. Over and over, St. Paul, the great church planter, he encouraged all of his communities throughout Asia Minor to understand that they were literally in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. One of the words in pre-gathering prayer this morning was that we would be clothed in power. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus by faith. And this is what Jesus prayed for us in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. That's his disciples of the first century. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. That's us 2,000 years later. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. God wants partnership with us that develops intimate union with him. I also love that John notes Jesus already knew exactly what he was going to do in this whole situation. Jesus already knows. Another word from pre-gathering prayer this morning was, I know. He already knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing in this moment with all, all of us and our culture. And he actually didn't need to let Philip in on what he was doing. He didn't have to do that, but he wanted Philip in on it. He wanted Philip to experience intimacy with him. And John also makes this very interesting note. Remember, he's a terribly sophisticated author. So John makes a note that when everyone, the whole crowd, had eaten their fill, they took up 12 baskets of leftover bread. John's making a very careful and strategic theological point for his readers and his communities. Those 12 baskets, I'm persuaded, commentators are divided across the board, but I've been thinking about this for years. I think I'm right. I hope I'm right. Here it is. Those 12 baskets, I think they represent the 12 disciples in John's mind for his communities. Because those 12 disciples, they would go on and they would metaphorically feed the masses by becoming broken bread through their disciple making. Some of them into eventual martyrdom, literally broken for Jesus for the sake of others. In our partnership with Jesus, in that intimate union, we become the broken bread to go and feed humans with true life, true joy, true peace, the saving grace of Jesus. Let's close with this. Let's ask some concrete questions to take into our week this week. If there's not something to do from this, there's really no point. So how, how are we transformed? Let's ask that question. What is our part in how we are transformed in Jesus? How do we mature? 
again from our story, first and foremost, we have to be honest and vulnerable with our doubts and our points of deconstruction with Jesus. If you come to Neighbors for any amount of time, you're going to get this theme. We are all about being with Jesus, not just learning about Jesus, thinking about Jesus, giving a nod to Jesus, theologically taking in data about Jesus. He's alive. And so we learn from Philip that we're to be honest and vulnerable, unashamed, with the deconstruction that we're dealing with, the doubts that we're dealing with, with him, actually with Jesus' actual presence. Jesus asks Philip in this partnering attempt with him, what are we going to do? And all Philip can do is, I don't know, I, we can't do anything. I'm deconstructing this whole mess right now, Jesus. There's nothing we can do. There's and upwards of 15,000 people here. What do you mean, what are we going to do? We are not going to do anything. It's over, which I think is what a lot of Christians are thinking right now. <laughs> we look at the mess, right? It's over. What are we going to do? I don't know. It's done. I'm out. <laughs> I've been there. Oh, my gosh, have I been there over this last year. Holy moly. But transformation does not mean that that doubt and that deconstruction disappears. It doesn't mean that at all. Transformation occurs in our souls. And God, in this mysterious way, when we get still, when we get quiet, when we surrender, he shapes our souls as we commune with Jesus by pure faith about these things. I am filled with doubt and cynicism and deconstructive issues right now, Lord. I'm going to be still in your presence and let you have all that. I'm going to let you transform that as you see fit by pure faith. You indwell me. We don't hide our doubts. We don't overcome our doubts and our deconstruction with positive thinking. And I would say it's even more important to share with the Christ and others in community these doubts. We really do pray Neighbors is a safe place in the sense that you're able to get into a community group and be like, I've been deconstructing for four years. I don't know where I'm at. And let that community come around you and be loved with and by. Number two, number two, as we wait and watch and we see that God is faithful despite our broken faith, He does the work that we thought was impossible. And then number two, to be transformed, we simply have to bring whatever we have, however we are, wherever we are, to be broken bread for our society and see real transformation in this moment. As a tiny little church plant in San Diego, we have to bring whatever we have, however we are, wherever we are right in the moment. So Andrew, he comes along with this idea. He's found this little dude with a a poor man's Galilean lunch. Barley loaves and sardines. And for whatever reason, Andrew doesn't get caught up in the doubt and in the impossibility of the situation. He's looking at Jesus, and then he finds what is present, and he brings what he can find right in the moment to Jesus. And this is how that transformative partnership with Jesus works. We're honest and vulnerable with him, and then we come to Jesus with what we've got, exactly as we are, nothing hidden with wherever we are in that particular moment. Every single one of us right now, we all have those unconscious and conscious narratives that are just destroying us. Oh man, I'm just not that gifted. I'm not educated enough. I'm not pretty enough. The shame narrative just wrecks us. I'm not valuable, why would God ever use me? I'm not lovable, I'm not usable. And so what we do to be transformed 
is we bring all of those things literally to his living presence in stillness and silence and faith and community in celebration and famine or feasting and in fasting. We, in all these practices, we bring what we are to him and God absolutely loves this kind of thing. He loves to, lo- to use the least to do the most, literally. He loves to take the broken and build through them, and he loves to take fools and make them wise. It's just the game that he's in. It's what he is all about in this partnered union with him. If we'll quit faking it, if we'll come as we are to who he is and let him have what we have in the moment without trying to fix it. And so no matter how we are right now and no matter where we are right now, what we have is enough for him to multiply miraculously. I call you to faith in that truth again in this moment in our culture. What you and I have is enough for God to multiply to the masses. It is. Just embrace that today and take peace in that. Live into that. Rejoice in that. And then number three, finally, we'll close with this. We're transformed as we're honest and vulnerable about where we are. We bring to him what we have. And then finally, we obey. We literally obey. This little kid that nobody wants to talk about in the commentaries or in the sermons that I read on this passage over the last few weeks, this little kid, he is literally the most powerful actor next to Jesus in the whole story because of his obedience. He is virtually unnoticed in any teaching. And any reading of this, nobody sits and meditates on this little kid for hours after reading John chapter 6, 1 through 15. But he is literally at the center of this miracle. And you have to realize, this little kid, he could have resisted. Like, what are these bullies coming and doing trying to take my lunch from me? You're not going to take my lunch from me. I'm not giving you my lunch. These are my barley loaves. These are my sardines. No way am I turning this over to you lunatics. You got this crazy guy up there saying, how are we going to feed 15,000 people? I'm not doing this. I'm hungry. I want to eat my own lunch. I'm going to do my own thing. And set. this little guy, John, the sophisticated author, doesn't even really give much notice to him because he wants us to meditate on the fact that this little guy, unnoticed, was like, okay, I'll obey. Sure. He handed over what he had in obedience, a heart of obedience. And it was that simple act of obedience that became one of Jesus' most famous miracles. It is the moments this week, my dear friends, it's the moments this week that you think are utterly insignificant. It's tomorrow morning when you wake up and you, you actually earnestly pray for the salvation of Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It's that moment as an obedient act of offering to God that may become some of God's most miraculous works in, in, this, in this climate, in this culture. It's the smile and the offering of a hand of help to a neighbor in the name of Jesus out of obedience to your heart that may utterly transform them. It's the act of obedience this week, a simple act of obedience of saying, I'm going to take an extra 10 minutes, I'm going to get still and quiet in my soul before God. That may be the miraculous transformation that finally breaks free some of the pain and anguish and desperation that you've been feeling over these months, years. Uh, I'm not eloquent. I'm done. We need to come to communion now. (laughs) And so as we come to communion, Joshua is going to come up. He's going to lead us in some more worship. But I do want to invite you, I think, as I did at the beginning of this, this talk, to, um, 
to once again take that posture of inward exploration. Um, we, are, we are utterly persuaded that we can only behave in a godly way in the world when we become still before God. And we are utterly, utterly committed to the truth that out of silence, true godly speech is birthed. And I think that there is so much speech right now from Christians and non-Christians that's just like sewer pipes have been opened. And let's just sewer pipe all over each other. When the Bible says that from our innermost being, that was really gross. That was really gross. I'm sorry. But from our innermost being, waters, living water flows from our innermost being. And out of silence and stillness, you can actually let those tributaries grow. When we get still and we let silence kind of deafen all the other tributaries of toxicity that are feeding our souls right now, and we're there with God being vulnerable and honest, we're giving him what we have, and he gives to us one little insignificant thing to obey for that day, maybe for the next 10 minutes. It's out of that stillness and out of that silence that we go forth into our day with our souls in union with Jesus to live on that pioneer kind of frontier edge between heaven and earth where the veil thins, that's your soul. Your soul is where the veil thins between heaven and earth and stillness and silence infuse that heaven-earth nexus so that then you go in as a non-anxious presence, the people of peace, the people who serve king of kings, the people who cannot deconstruct anymore because they've landed at rock bottom with Jesus and they're handing him these fish and loaves to feed workplace, student, friend, family member. For following Jesus, we feed our enemies. We pray for the one that just makes us the most crazy. We love as we've been loved. Uh, my wife will be up here to hand out communion for us. If you would, would you once again just close your eyes and let's pray. Father, this this. This passage means so much to me. It's meant so much to me over this past couple weeks. And so, just as an offering to you, I bring what I have, which is all the fear and anxiety, all the joy, all the delight, all the memories, all the hopes and dreams. And I know that you are going to shape my motivations for following as you, you will shape every human. With you, Jesus, I pray, John 17, would you make us one black white, Mexican, Asian, rich, poor, male, female. Make us one in the church again. Make us one across denominational divides. Make us one across political divides. Make your church one, Jesus. In unified partnership with you, vulnerable, honest, wounded, healed. And may we be broken bread for this fractured society, for this starving society. May we be broken bread as our own bodies and minds and hearts are healed by your gracious touch. All we can do is pray and respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. As Shua starts to lead us in worship, I would invite you to come forward and you can grab the communion elements and then please hold on to them. And Shua will lead us in a meditation this morning to, to have a meal with Jesus, a symbolic meal where we share bread with one another and with him. With, with, literally with him.